Good morning, everyone. I'm Joe Lichty. I'm professor of Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies, and it's my uh, pleasure to introduce both the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture and the lecturer, who is this year our own Duane Stolzfus. First, C. Henry Smith, however. He was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian who taught several uh, spells at Goshen, the last and longest from 1908 to 1913, and then he taught a really long time at Bluffton College from 1913 to 46. He established a trust from which Goshen College benefits in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. There is extra money for peace-related books in many disciplines for the library, for peace-related activities, for the peace oratorical contest for students, and so forth. Since 1975, one of these benefits is that the Smith Trust directors grant one award per year for peace-related research by faculty at Mennonite colleges, principally Goshen and Bluffton. The award has done a lot to stimulate research that might otherwise have been difficult or impossible, and since its introduction, the list of lecturers is distinguished and the topics are innovative. Which brings us to today's C. Henry Smith Peace Lecturer, Professor Duane Stolzfus, who has been teaching communication and advising the record since the year 2000. After graduating from Goshen in 1981, Duane has pursued both higher education, master's degree in 1988, and then a PhD in 2001, alongside a career in journalism. As a journalist, Duane rose from local government reporting to a post as staff editor for the National and Metro desks of the New York Times. He worked at the Times three years before he finally hit the big time, by which he, I mean he came to teach at Goshen. <clears throat> Duane's presentation today, representing some of his findings from five years of research, including a sabbatical year, is titled Standing in Chains in Alcatraz. Book manuscript is under consideration at Johns Hopkins University Press. This morning is the storytelling part of Duane's presentation, also the hymn singing part. Uh, there's a handout around, and see if you can find somebody near you who has it, um, lists four hymns. We're going to sing two verses of each one. Uh, Bev Lapp and the student group will lead the first verse, and then everybody else please join on the second verse. And if you want to know more, consider coming to part two tomorrow evening in Ad 28 at 7. There, Duane will show uh, photos of uh, the, the story he's telling and participate in a question and answer session with the audience. So, now please join me in welcoming Duane as he tells us who was standing in chains at Alcatraz and when and why. The wonder is that the United States Army even wanted four young Hutterite farmers from the Rockport Colony in South Dakota. Soldiering was most assuredly not in their DNA. The communal church to which they belonged had been resolutely set against all warfare for 400 years, and their grandparents had immigrated to the United States decades earlier, leaving their farms in Russia to travel thousands of miles 
all to avoid having their men drafted into the Russian army. And at the time of immigration, the United States was eager for settlers, especially skillful farmers. And so President Ulysses Grant, the President of the United States, personally wooed representatives from the Hutterites at his summer home on Long Island. And while the President said he could not guarantee that they would be free of military service in the United States, he made the prospect of a draft sound highly unlikely. They could count on at least 50 untroubled years, he assured them. And yet, here these four young farmers were on the morning of May 25th, 1918, well short of the 50-year mark, summoned by the U.S. Army for participation in World War I. Three of the men were brothers, David, Michael, and Joseph Hofer. And as you might expect in their closed community, the fourth man was a relative, Jacob Whipp. All four were leaving wives and children at home on the colony, where the main work was farming and where all members held all property in common, wanting to follow in the footsteps of the early believers in the Acts. The 4,000 acres of colony land belonged to the community. The 500 head of cattle belonged to the community. The identical field stone houses belonged to the community. On this day, the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whip were boarding a special military train for Camp Lewis, Washington, where tens of thousands of recruits from the western states were already learning to salute, to drill, and to handle a bayonet. The Hutterites were determined not to participate in the military, but they had been drafted, and they wanted to do all they could to cooperate, hoping for an assignment they could accept. Now, in the eyes of the military, every single man who boarded that train was already a soldier in the U.S. Army even if some, like the Hutterites, were going to need more shaping than others. Things had been tense in South Dakota, tense between the Hutterites and their neighbors since the U.S. had entered the war a year earlier. The Hutterites refused to buy war bonds, and they kept to themselves, and they, they dressed oddly. The men wore black and grew beards, symbolic of their commitment to God. At a glance, you might mistaken the Hutterites for the Amish. But where the Amish carved out separate homesteads and used horses for farming, the Hutterites shared all property in common, and they used modern machinery. They also spoke German, which was the language of the enemy on the battlefield. On the very day that the men left for Camp Lewis, South Dakota had banned the speaking of German in schools and churches, one of many efforts to ensure loyalty to the United States. And the Hutterites, they looked and they spoke as if they had been transported from another century, from a European village in the old world. When they worshiped as they did each day, they used an archaic form of high German, the language of their sacred hymns and the language of their sermons, written centuries earlier by Anabaptist martyrs and by those close to them. The Hutterites saw themselves as kind of a pure, select remnant 
ever watchful, knowing that persecution could return at any moment. And the tension between the Hutterites and those on the train was apparent from the start. A conductor took them from one car to another, trying to find a place where they would be left in peace. To most of the 1,200 young men on the train, the Hutterites were Russian clunies. They were slackers of the worst kind. Finally, the conductor found a place, a compartment where they would be left alone. But as a safeguard, the Hutterites took a two-by-four and they spread that across the door so that no one could enter. And all was quiet through the first day and night. And then at mid-afternoon, a group of young soldiers came to the door, and they knocked. The Hutterites told them that they were not opening the door, and they knocked again. And the Hutterites decided to open the door just a crack. And the men stormed in, and they hauled them away one by one, and they cut off their beards, and they cut their hair close to the scalp. For the men with the shears, the young soldiers, it was a harmless and patriotic way to get the Hutterites to look the part of soldiers. Free barbering, they called it. But for the Hutterites, it was a frightening introduction to the army. Dear Maria, our Savior has said that they will come to us in sheep's clothing, but in truth they are ravenous wolves. When we arrived in Judith Basin in Montana, they came to us. They cut my beard and hair off completely. Our Savior has gone before us as an example that we should follow after him in his footsteps, for we have come into such a great suffering. It's now 11.30 and time to go to sleep. We're going here so fast through the mountains and beside the mountains. If one thinks back to where we have come from, our dear community, one could cry bitterly, especially if one reflects on where we are being taken. But God has promised us that he will stand and go before us if we only will trust in him. Your never forgetting spouse, Michael Hofer.
Now, the best way to picture the importance of Camp Lewis to the nation during World War I would be to stand at the Texas Panhandle and look straight north, drawing an imaginary line through the middle of the country, through Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska and the Dakotas, right up to the Canadian border. And if you looked east from that line, you would have seen 15 National Army training camps. And if you looked west, you would have seen one, Camp Lewis at American Lake, Washington. And recruits from Alaska and from California and Idaho and Montana, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Wyoming, Minnesota, the Dakotas, they were all headed to Camp Lewis. And some, like the Hutterites, traveling as far as 2,000 miles. Camp Lewis itself was the largest of the training camps, and it was in many respects an ideal place in which to train for battle. The average summer temperature climbed to a comfortable 71 degrees, and at night dipped down to a refreshing 52 degrees. And few other sites could compare with the vista at Camp Lewis. The great barracks were arrayed in two curving arcs, which opened southeastward toward Mount Rainier. The great sentinel of the, cap, of the camp, capped in white. The camp itself was bursting at the seams with tens of thousands of young men, shoehorned into officially designated company barracks. But to over accommodate the overflow, they had to turn hay sheds into barracks as well. And, and some men even slept outdoors in tents. Meals were served at 6 in the morning, 12 noon, and at 6 at night. For breakfast, the cooks piled the metal plates high with steak, potatoes, rice, and they filled cups with coffee as the men walked by. Other meals were even larger, usually ending with pie. The Army's daily ration for the soldiers was an impressive 4,761 calories. And of course, the men had to work off the food. The recruits were being readied to ship out as infantrymen on the front lines in France. And you can hear the excitement in their letters home and in their later memoirs. There was a young Mennonite from California, David Jansen, who was eager to put on a uniform as a non-combatant. And he wrote, after 30 days of such drilling, it was easily seen how a fat pouch began to slide off a roly-poly man, or how a spindly bank teller set his feet down firm. And a swing came to the men as they marched to and from the drill ground. But less than 24 hours, after the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whip had arrived. They found themselves not on the parade ground, but instead in guardhouse number 54. The officers at the camp had pressed the men to line up in formation and to fill out simple enlistment and assignment cards, but the men were steadfast in, the, in their refusal. The thing is, on the top of each card, it said statement of soldier. And the men said they were not soldiers, and they could not complete the card. And they said they could not line up as soldiers, and they could not head to the parade ground to drill as soldiers. In sending all drafted men to one of these training camps, with no option for civilian service, President Woodrow Wilson and Newton Baker, the Secretary of War, were confident that they could persuade 
everyone, including members of the historic peace churches like the Hutterites, to do their part for the nation and for the army. Men who didn't want to carry a gun and use it could still drive an ambulance or cook in the kitchen with a uniform on. The army needed everyone. Wilson and Baker also envisioned the army as a terrific melting pot. At the time of the war, one-third of Americans were either born overseas or were the children of immigrants, one-third. And Secretary Baker spoke movingly about how men of every religious group and every immigrant stream and every political view would be welded into one body. He said, for when on some moonlight night on the fields of France, some American boy's face is upturned, some boy who has made the grand and final sacrifice in this cause, no passerby nor no imagination that reaches him will be able to discern whether he came from a blacksmith's forge or a merchant's counter or a banker's counting room. He will simply be an American. But the Hutterites were committed to their own worldview in which two kingdoms, one of God and one of the world, stood in conflict. And they believed they could not contribute to the nation if it meant having to wear a uniform and serve in the army. And the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whipp had arrived at Camp Lewis, the misfortune of arriving just as commanders across the country appeared intent on using trials to send a message to conscientious objectors like them, and just before Secretary Baker opened the way for farm furloughs. Before putting the men on trial, though, the military had to declare that they were insincere or defiant. And the reasoning often seemed to be, in the military's thinking, that anyone who is of sound mind and refused the military's fair offer of non-combatant service must be insincere. By that logic, the Hutterites stood no chance in securing a different outcome. Now, they saw themselves as Christians, not soldiers. And as Christians, their refusal to participate in the army was a sure sign of sincerity. So the Hutterites and the military officials were talking to themselves across kingdom walls. The men went on trial, accused of disobeying orders. Lieutenant Robert Schertzer and Sergeant R.B. Hilt were among those who testified against them. Lieutenant Robert Schertzer said at the trial, recounting the story, he had said, what is the matter with those four men? Hilt said, they won't fall in. Schertzer said, they will fall in. To the Hutterites, Schertzer said, here, you men, fall in with that last squad there. Hutterites, we can't do anything like that. Schertzer, I explained to you men about this. This has nothing to do with fighting. I read the orders to you, and you will have to obey orders, or else you will have to go to the guardhouse. The Hutterites, we can't. Schertzer, Sergeant, take them over to the office. We will have to put them in the guardhouse. And then the Hutterites at the trial were called to the witness stand. Question, are you willing to take part in any non-combatant branch of service in the Army? Hutterites, no, we can't. What are your reasons? Well, it is all for war. The only thing we can do is work on a farm for the poor and needy ones of the United States. 
What do you mean by poor and needy ones? Well, those that can't help themselves. Does your religion believe in fighting of any kind? No. You would not fight with your fists? Well, we ain't no angels, and little boys will scrap sometimes and we're punished, but, but our religion don't allow it. To put the case like this, if a man was attacking or assaulting your sister, would you fight? No. Would you kill him? No. All four men were found guilty of all charges, and they were sentenced to 20 years of hard labor to be served at Alcatraz. Dear Maria, we must hold firmly to God and plead to him with prayers for the strength of his Holy Spirit so that we might win the battle and remain firm unto the end and fight for truth as so many of our forefathers did who came out of the fight with bloodied heads. And now they are yonder and have received their reward. And dear spouse, if we want to go there where they are now, then we must also follow in their footsteps and give heed to their faith. For the children of God are called to nothing else than to affliction, cross, tribulation, persecution, and hatred from the world. Joseph Hofer. So at the end of July 1918, the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whip were chained together in pairs and escorted by four armed lieutenants down the coast by train to Alcatraz. And the island was known as the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks, Pacific Branch, but called Alcatraz or simply the Rock. From the mainland in San Francisco to get out to the island, it was about a 20-minute boat ride heading out into the wind that blew through the strait known as the Golden Gate. And from the rock, or the dock on that rock, they climbed a steep path with one switchback after another, up a steep hill to a massive cell house 
on top of the island. On arrival, each prisoner was instructed to take a bath and to put on prison dress. And when the men refused to put on army clothing, they were led down a flight of 14 stairs to the basement of the prison, a place of solitary confinement known as the hole. And in this dungeon, each man entered a cell under a sloping brick arch that was about six feet high and about six and a half feet wide. Guards left a uniform on the floor for each man. And before they left, one guard warned, if you don't conform, you'll stay here till you give up the ghost like the four we carried out yesterday. Alcatraz, which after the war would become a federal prison known for its high-profile inmates like Machine Gun Kelly and Al Capone, was always a fearsome place, windswept, cut off by cold currents. In the dungeon, all was pitch black and quiet. For the first four and a half days, the Hutterites received a half a glass of water each day, but no food. And after that, they received bread and water. At night, the men slept without blankets on the cement floor that was wet from water that oozed through the walls. There were no beds in the dungeon. There were no toilet facilities, just a pail assigned to each man. On the floor beside the them were soldiers' uniforms, promising some warmth if they gave up their resistance. And the prison officials were determined to break the resistance of the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whip during especially their first week in the dungeon. At one point, they chained each man's hands, one across the other, and lifted them up so high that their toes barely touched. It's a technique known as high cuffing. When the men wrote home, they said nothing of their conditions at Alcatraz. And so we have to turn to others who wrote letters of a different kind or memoirs after the war, like Philip Grosser, who wrote, the things hardest to endure in the dungeon were the complete darkness, the sitting and sleeping on the damp concrete floor and the lack of sight or sound from any human being. The 18 ounces of bread was quite sufficient for the first few days, and toward the last, I even had some bread left over. The rats were quite peaceful and friendly. By military law, the convicts could not be kept down in the dungeon for more than 14 days at a time, and so the Hutterites rotated in and out of the dungeon. 14 days in, 14 days in a regular cell, back to the dungeon, back to bread and water. Wilbert Rideau, who's a, an award-winning journalist who himself spent 44 years in Louisiana, in his case for killing someone, described what it's like to be in solitary confinement. He wrote, one, two, three, four, five, turn, one, two, three, four, five, stop. Suddenly, the adrenaline is coursing through me. I freeze like a feral cat who spots a stray dog. It's the walls. They're closing in. They're moving in on me. They're closing up this tomb. The United States Supreme Court nearly declared the punishment unconstitutional in a case way back in 1890 in which a Colorado murderer had been held in isolation for a month awaiting his execution. In World War I, in cases like this, provided more evidence that solitary confinement was a cruel practice. 
and the authorities closed those isolation cells at Alcatraz. And for the better part of the 20th century, in keeping with the court's outlook, the US rarely used solitary confinement. It's interesting, in yesterday's New York Times, there's a study, that, uh, a report uh, that points to a, a changing in the outlook with regard to solitary confinement. In recent decades, it was on the, on the upswing with more and more people being kept in solitary. But now states are once again saying, maybe this is not the best way to hold inmates. What happens to someone in solitary? There are two psychologists who have researched the various studies that have been done, uh, Craig Haney and Mona Lynch, and they said that every study has documented damage among the inmates who were held for longer than 10 days. And the damages include chronic anxiety, insomnia, impulsive anger, memory lapses, hallucinations, self-mutilation, and suicide. As members of a communal group, the Hutterites must have felt the isolation with an extra burden. But the men are silent in their letters, except to suggest that death is in the offing. Dear Anna, my dear spouse and children, I'm sure you'll be anxious to hear how things are going during these dark days. We're all quite well, temporally and spiritually, and wish you the same. It seems that we're supposed to stay here in this misery, but we have to pray to God that he will lead us on the right path. We all do not expect to see each other in this world anymore, the way it seems now. But we should not despair. With God's strength, we hope to overcome, as we have promised God, we trust in him. He's the only one who can help us, as he did in the olden days, David Hofer. The men arrived together at, I well, we just want to, San Francisco celebrated the armistice, the end of war, with a human chain of 5,000 people who gathered at the Civic Center 
still wearing flu masks as a precaution because like so much of the rest of the country, the city was emerging from the worst of an influenza epidemic when war, at least on paper, came to an end, November 11th, 1918. And three days after that armistice, the Hutterites left Alcatraz, still in chains. This time, they were escorted by six sergeants. And the men arrived at, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. November 19th at night, fully spent, they were chained at the risks, carrying satchels in one hand and a Bible under, and shoes under the arm. And they were hurried up a hill toward a military the military prison. The three Hofer brothers and Jacob Whipp, who had been confined together since their arrival at Camp Lewis in May, finally separated at Fort Leavenworth in November. Joseph and Michael Hofer had turned gravely ill. So while David Hofer and Jacob Whipp were placed in solitary confinement, standing in chains nine hours a day, Michael and Joseph Hofer were hospitalized and prison authorities, authorities notified their families back home in South Dakota. The wives arrived at Leavenworth in time to see their husbands, but Joseph was barely able to communicate, and he died the following morning. The guards told family members they could not see him, but Joseph's wife, Maria, was insistent, and the head officer relented, so with tears in her eyes, she approached the coffin which was set on two chairs, and when the lid was opened, she found that Joseph, in death, had been dressed in the military uniform that in life he had refused to wear. Michael Hofer died just a few days later. To the Hutterites, the men were martyrs. They had died because of mistreatment at the hands of the state while remaining true to their religious beliefs. The army listed the official cause of death as pneumonia brought on by influenza. The third brother, David Hofer, was immediately released, free to accompany the bodies of his brothers back to South Dakota. Joseph Whipp remained in solitary confinement. But several days after the brothers died, Secretary of War Newton Baker ordered that prisoners no longer be chained standing to the bars of their cells. An expert in the history of torture, Darius Rajali, concluded that the harshest prisoner punishments during the war fell on those conscientious objectors like the Hutterites who refused all service or all work in the military. And the standard punishment for such men, standing handcuffs, is one of many physical coercive techniques that Rajali refers to as clean tortures, that is, techniques that leave few marks. Jacob Whipp's father, and others were still trying to win his release, especially now that the war was over. But as winter changed to spring in 1919, he remained in solitary confinement with scores of others. Of the nearly three million American men who entered the army, 3,989 were conscientious objectors, and of that number, 504 were court-martialed. Mark May, a researcher at Syracuse University, worked with data that was collected from these conscientious objectors at the time of the war. And his report soon after the war cast doubt on the appropriateness of the court-martial of the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whipp. 
He said, the degree of sincerity of a conscientious objector is a thing almost impossible to determine. And he also challenged the Army's fierce determination to redirect men like the Hofer brothers and Jacob Whipp into conformity. He wrote, so when creed, minister, parents, and friends tell him that war is wrong and that he must not fight, what could be expected of him? For a man like this not to be a conscientious objector would violate all the laws of heredity and environment that operate to make men pursue certain courses of action. On April 13, 1919, nearly 11 months after his arrest, Jacob Whipp reversed his walk through the iron gates of Leavenworth, free to return to South Dakota in time for the spring planting. And back there, he found a Hutterite homeland transformed. Many of the colonies had abandoned their farms and moved to Canada, and the Rockport colonists would soon follow. And when they reunited that spring, Jacob Whipp and David Hofer, we imagine they may have taken a short walk up the hillside to the cemetery to pay their respects to David and to, or to Joseph and to Michael. All the grave markers in that cemetery were the same size, about the size of a shoebox, identical save two. And one pictures them bending low to these two markers for Joseph and Michael to see a single word that had been added, martyr. The experience of these four men contributes significantly to one of the darker chapters of this period of American history, when a wartime patriotic fever and a widespread suspicion of all things German fueled attacks on conscientious objectors and others who did not rally to the cause. And their tale, distressing as it is, does not follow a simple script. We can appreciate why the Hutterites became absolutist objectors during the war and feel empathy for these men in the face of their sufferings 
And at the same time, we can also appreciate the challenges set before military commanders and guards who followed a different set of orders, and by their worldview could not understand why these men would not contribute to the national cause if only by pushing a broom. Even so, the government can be held to account these many years later. In Washington, the highest officials in the land had set in motion a series of actions, a series of actions that, taken together, resulted in a miscarriage of justice. Four men who neither sought to harm or injure anyone at any turn ended up hanging in chains, a treatment that President Wilson himself later described as barbarous or medieval. The Hutterites were part of a stream of Americans in World War I who were punished for remaining true to their convictions. They could have fallen in line on the broad path, but by insisting on taking the narrow path, the Hutterites and other dissenters forced the nation to confront the most essential of questions. Is this the meager freedom that we wish to share in the United States, that someone will be imprisoned for refusing to fight, or for criticizing the war, or for speaking ill of the nation's leaders. And over time, the answer came back from lawmakers in Congress, from justices on the Supreme Court, and most importantly, from their neighbors. The answer came back, we can do better. There's no doubt that the Hutterites today would automatically be counted conscientious objectors with civilian status. And the courts would reject hanging men like them in chains and giving them bread and water. Our constitutional compass, including the First Amendment, promising freedom of speech and promising freedom to practice religion, and the Eighth Amendment, banning cruel and unusual punishment, it now points us toward a higher ground. The Hofer brothers and Jacob Whip received one sentence obits when they died, but they left expansive legacies, and their story of holding fast to their religious beliefs in the face of persecution challenges Christians today in their daily walk and reminds all Americans nearly a century later that we're only as free as the Hutterites among us. Thank you.